think it would be so interesting if in regular clinical medicine, after a patient encounter, we asked each other afterwards, what was going through that person's head? What are they feeling? Just to make empathy more of an active exercise instead of an internal one. I think empathy is less in medicine about sort of catchphrases and things you say to them and more about putting ourselves into their brains, which is also, like I said before, the task of writing. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we share stories of humans who are designing a better and healthier future. On today's episode, we get to tap into the creative mind of Dr. Roshan Sethi. Roshan is a physician and screenwriter. He works at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. He actually began screenwriting as a student at Harvard Medical School and co-created Fox's The Resident while finishing his residency. Recently, he wrote and directed a rom-com called Seven Days. It just featured at the Tribeca Film Festival, and he also co-wrote both a miniseries on Sally Ryder for Sony and a film titled Call Jane with Elizabeth Banks that just wrapped up shooting. We had such a great conversation. We talk about the parallels between screenwriting and medicine, how writing can be an act of empathy and storytelling in medicine. We are thankful for so many of you who listen to the show on a regular basis. It means a lot to me. And you can continue to show your support by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving us five stars, and going there and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. We also love it when we hear from you on social media. You could reach out to me on Twitter. I can be found there at B-O-N-K-U or on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Now here's my conversation with Roshan Sethi. I hope you enjoy it. Roshan Sethi, welcome to Design Lab. So happy that you have joined us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I want to talk about storytelling in medicine, but before we dive into that, you grew up in Calgary, Canada, and yeah. you used to work in your mom's primary care clinic growing up. So how the heck did you get interested in screenwriting? Because I heard that you were actually restricted from watching a lot of television growing up. Yeah, I, yeah, I, what, you know, my mom wanted to encourage me to read. So what I mainly did was read. And then we weren't supposed to watch TV and we very rarely went out to go see a movie. And if we did, it was usually an Indian movie because in Calgary, they had a theater that played Bollywood. So I was not exposed to much cinema and not really anything American, honestly, but read widely. And that's partly how I became a writer. And my initial ambition was not never to be a screenwriter. I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write short fiction. And then at one period also wanted to write epic fantasy. I had all these plans, but I turned out to be better at screenwriting than at writing prose. I feel like people go in one direction or the other, but prose requires like, just impeccable sentences one after another. And uh, that was not my strength. My punishment as a kid was reading books. So that's how I'm widely read. Cause my dad would like, just be like, you're not, you're grounded and you're just going to read books. So that was my punishment <laughs> growing up. So that, and I got punished a lot. <laughs> so yeah. I ended up reading a lot of books and, funny. and then I heard this story that there was a professor, you went to Yale for college mm -hmm. and there's a professor who actually discouraged you from becoming a writer. 
In my first class, my composition class, I had, I was very anxious about the class because I was very anxious about becoming a writer somehow while also pursuing medicine. And I was eager to please him. And the first thing I turned in, he said that one of the, he was very discouraging of me becoming a writer. He said that it was partly because all doctors are bad communicators. He had a particular thing against physicians and he knew that many of the people in his class uh, were pre-meds. And then you the weren't even a doctor at that point. You're pre-med. Uh, but he thought we had settled into some scientific pattern of poor communication. Then he also said that what was apparent in my writing to him was that I had quote unquote Bengali in my ear, which I did not because I don't speak Bengali or understand it. If I was exposed to anything, it was Hindi and Punjabi, but definitely not Bengali. But either way, just the fact that he randomly assumed that it was Bengali was funny to me on top of the overt racism. That's that's crazy. That's like if my college prof professor said, oh, you have too much Korean in your ear. And you're like, my <laughs> Korean sucks. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That is wild. Well, this pernicious theory that being exposed to other cultures and languages will somehow erode your ability to write quote unquote sophisticated content. But my mom was discouraged when I was growing up from speaking Hindi and Punjabi around us for fear of, you know, crowding our brains with other languages. When in fact, now I believe most studies show that it actually helps kids to be exposed mm -hmm. to more languages. I regret not paying more attention in Korean class growing up because my Korean is like awful right now. And that's one of my life's biggest regrets. Yeah. It's a hard thing because you want to, you can probably understand your parents. Yep. Yep. If yeah, I, yeah. But in yeah, I understand them, but then I speak to them in like Conglish, a mixture of like Korean and English. Yeah. I do something similar with Hindi. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not too many physician screenwriters in the wild like you, because you're legit in both of these disciplines. You've done some great shows. I mean, there's a black box that was on ABC. Code Black was on CBS for three seasons and The Resident, which is still on Fox, five seasons, which is pretty remarkable. And you went to some respectable schools. There's a place called Harvard University where you did med school and you did residency there and you're a radiation oncologist. I was curious to know, like, how do you code switch between these two disciplines and how many people are there like you? Well, there's actually quite a few physician writers now. First of all, I was only a medical consultant on Black Box and on Code Black, I was actually only on that show for 13 weeks of a total three-year span. And then The Resident, I also left after the first season. <laughs> so I haven't been quite as involved in all of those shows as it may appear. And then the second thing I'll say is that preceding me was Neil Bayer, who actually started writing for ER when he was a medical student at Harvard Medical School. And he used to like collect and canvas stories from his classmates that appeared directly in the show. He later did a pediatrics residency along with writing for ER, which remained on the air as for a long time. And then he, I think now doesn't practice any medicine and just writes full time. He's show run many shows and is like a very senior writer in Hollywood. And then there are other writers who have also come in more recently. There are um, several physician writers on the staff of the writing staff of the resident. And uh, yeah, it's become, I think, more of a thing than it was maybe back then when I started. But but yeah, it, I think the code switching is difficult. It, you know, in those shows, I was writing about medicine, so it wasn't as far of a stretch. But since then, I've written almost exclusively not about medicine. And that has been that has felt more like I belong to two completely different worlds. Oh, really? What are some of these shows that you've written about that aren't about medicine? 
Yeah, so I, I wrote and directed a feature, meaning a movie, that was at Tribeca this year that is a rom-com and that has nothing to do with medicine. And then I uh, also wrote a feature. What, what's the name of it? It's called Seven Days. It's okay. Come out theatrically next year in February of 2022. And then I wrote another feature with a former writing partner, Haley Shore, that's titled Call Jane, that wrapped production in May and that will, you know, hopefully come out next year it's another independent film and then have a few things in development too that i'm probably not supposed to name but um <laughs> I, I yeah i've i've written now over 10 features and most of them have had nothing to do with medicine but some of them have had to do with science so i don't know how to quite categorize those but they're not like said in hospitals so now are there some parallels between medicine and screenwriting um, yeah, I think they both involve empathy and understanding people when done well. And uh, I think that would be the primary thing. It's hard to draw that many more similarities. In practice, they're so different because medicine yeah. is such an extroverted profession done with so many different people. It's chaotic. It's hectic. It's difficult. Physically, writing is more of a solitary activity, more reflective and meditative. You can do it in the context of a room, but I've done it for the most part, honestly, on my own in early hours, even when I'm working with a writing partner and we're trading drafts, the writing itself is being done in a solitary way. So they're just so different. What, how is, how is writing an empathetic act? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I think it's actually really, it doesn't work without empathy because especially when you're writing a scene with multiple people, you have to understand everyone's perspectives and what they are feeling in that moment in order to write the scene effectively. And you have to deeply understand them. Why they say the next thing they say is often motivated by sort of subterranean emotions that are hard to even describe, but that you can sense intuitively when you watch something. And I belong to that school of thought that I know many screenwriters belong to, that the best, um, the best writing is deeply subtextual, where what you're saying almost doesn't even matter because it's what's beneath the text itself that is what people are paying attention to dramatically. The simplest example of that is, is a meet-cute where two people run into each other and one of them drops their belongings and the other helps them pick it up. And in that moment, what they say to each other doesn't matter at all because it's all in the subtext of the scene. So they could be saying anything, as long as they're stumbling over their words could be any words at all. And it's very clear what's happening dramatically. That obviously is a very basic cliched scene, but immediately captures your interest when you watch it every time. Yeah. And what was that? A meet cute? Meet cute. Yeah. Like just a, you know, when I, it's just a term used in rom-coms for the first time that a romantic couple meet each other. It's a cute meeting. <laughs> I don't know why it's called a meet cute. <laughs> I, I don't even that. know if that's a screenwriting term or if it's just a thing people say. I feel like I got it from the Mindy Project. I don't know what it is. Uh, well, maybe if I wrote more, I would become a more of an empathetic physician because sometimes it's hard to have empathy when you're in the grind. Um, so, yeah. Well, what I do, I, it actually helps me so much, and I'm sure it would help you too. Huh. Whenever, um, for example, I think this is a common situation that everyone has faced, which is how do you deal with an angry patient? And from years oh, of- I need that. I work yeah, in the emergency room, so yes. So you know how to deal. Well, from years of therapy, you've probably heard this before too, but I've heard it many times, which is that anger is a secondary emotion. And it's almost always secondary to either sadness or fear. 
So anytime I have a patient who is angry or quote unquote difficult, I just imagine them sobbing to remind myself that is probably what's underneath the anger. And it changes the way that you interact with them. If you think about where the anger is coming from, mm. because it's almost always secondary to something else. People in the hospital are for many reasons, as you know, so afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that many people, including myself, cope with fear is anger. Mm. Um, that's how I often cope with my fear is anger. <laughs> so I, I could totally relate to that. And a trick that I use sometimes is reframing when I see patients, and especially those patients who come in frequently to the emergency room, like super yeah. utilizers, you know, they're sometimes referred to unempathetically as, you know, our frequent flyers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, instead of saying, why are you here again to a uh, reframe that helps me is you know, what happened in your life or in your day that brought you to the emergency room again? Because something's going on if you're coming here yeah. every other day, every week. And a lot of our patients who are super utilizers have mental health issues. They have unstable housing. So it's a it's a cue for me to go not blaming yeah. the, the patient, but to have some empathy of like there's something that happened in their life that they're showing up all, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting. And I'm sure the frequent flyer thing has changed a lot during COVID too, but it, it is a, it's a fascinating phenomenon. That yeah. Almost- yeah. It, it did stop, but now when now we're back up to full volume, cr- cr- yeah. crowded, crowded, crowded emergency rooms and hospitals and throwing a little bit of COVID in there, it makes for some chaos. Oh um, my God. It's rough. It's rough. And it's been a very violent year in Philadelphia. It's been one of our most violent years in terms of gunshot wounds in Philadelphia. So it's been super chaotic. And in some ways, actually, it was easier working in a hospital at the height and first wave of pandemic because everything was shut down. So there was a lot of space to see patients, even though it's just this this fear of getting infected. But, you know, we had some good PPE, but it was actually easier to take care of patients during COVID because of, of the decreased volume. Yeah, it's crazy how that has all changed now. Um, Did you have many obstacles and hurdles from this dual life as a screenwriter and practicing physicians? Did the Sith Lords, you know, giving a Star Wars reference, of course, in medicine tell you to, you need to choose one or the other? Yeah, I would say almost everyone has told me in writing more than in medicine to to stop trying to do both things. Really? Um, oh, that's but, fascinating. Huh. But in medicine, I have found uh, a lot of the leadership remarkably accommodating. The chair of my department, who came on just as I was beginning my residency, allowed me to take a year off from residency in order to write. And that's the reason I'm still writing, the reason I'm a member of the Writers Guild. And then she also later, after I finished residency, gave me an attending job that afforded me the flexibility to continue writing and now directing. So she has like continually, her name is Daphne Haskogan. She's the chair of regional college at Brigham, but she uh, has continually sort of like moved mountains to help me remain creative, which I really appreciate. But more than the practical aspects, I think it has just been a very stressful time Mm. Um, becoming both a writer and a doctor. Underneath all of it is the fact that I'm gay and I was closeted until I came out at the age of 30. And Mm. I think many gay men and women struggle with this feeling of unworthiness and a feeling of being broken that drives them to extraordinary ambition. So Mm. I think the only reason I'm like 
doing all these crazy things is because I was gay. I think if I had been straight, I would be like a radiologist sitting on a couch, like married, but I would to a woman with like kids and just an, a more, a different life than the frenetic one um, filled with achievement that I've chosen. Mm. Um, and then the second challenge I faced was just, since we were talking about it earlier, I was it, under the weight of all of that stress really had an anger problem in the mm. early uh, or late part of my twenties that I've completely overcome amazingly since I've come out, since I've you know found my partner, Karen, and settled into the routines of my life, I've become a completely different person. Well, I could appreciate some tips about the anger because I've been in therapy for years and have not been able to overcome my anger so problem. Funny, you don't seem like you would ever get angry. I have a chill out, you know, surfer vibe, dude. But, you know, yeah. sometimes I like to use that anger as a primary motivator to like, you know, get work done and, you know, to drive off that anger. I was like, well, that's not really healthy. You know, yeah. well, I think everyone's <laughs> angry for different reasons. For me, I was I was angry as a way to mask the fear I felt about being in the closet, and I was also angry because I thought that like masculine aggression helped hide what I perceived as softness or weakness. So mm. it was honestly always a little bit of an act for me because I am not in my deepest nature an angry person. I'm actually very easygoing, as I've subsequently discovered, and sweet and loving. But it took a really long time. To discover that I was those things, but it's the real culprit is a society that teaches us, especially as men, to fear being feminine. Oh, uh, there's this toxic masculinity that yeah. you gotta. I've been trying to deprogram myself after decades of that, and I have a son too, and it's so oh, different, yeah. you know. Yeah. Of like, how do I raise my son in this, and not having fallen the same traps of toxic masculinity that. I have uh, fallen into. Yeah, it's it is really that must be quite a Herculean task. I'm obviously like not like the right person really to comment on all this, and I don't mean to say any of it in an authoritarian way, authoritative way. But I do feel um, that it is the root of so many ills in our society. It's the same source of homophobia. It's the same source of sexism and misogyny. Mm. It's it all comes from this basic fear of being feminine that you know, creates so much toxicity. I was curious to know, get your thoughts on medicine as a creative profession. Do you think it's a creative profession? And if so, why do we keep like creative people out of medicine? Yeah. Well, I do think it is a creative profession in many ways. Like for example, I did palliative care and it's intensely emotional human work and it doesn't feel scientific to me. It doesn't quite feel like I uh, creative, but it feels somewhere in between, certainly further along that spectrum. My twin brother is a surgeon and the work he does in doing these very elaborate reconstructions feels very creative to me. It's, it feels like sculpting. And when I see his hands move with these perfect incisions that often heal so completely that you can't see the scar later, um, that feels like art to me. <laughs> but I agree on the face of it, there are many ways to practice medicine that aren't even remotely creative. But what we need are creative people. We need human people because memorizing is the easy part. Yeah. And, and telling the stories of our patients, you know, I, I feel like when a patient tells me a story, I was like, well, that's, I have a responsibility to tell their story. And that's a data point right there. You know, I get so much data, medical data from that sample size of one right in front of me at the bedside. And 
Yeah. I think they're, and it's like writing notes all the time. I'm like recounting, I'm like listening to her story, interpreting what's going on and documenting it, even though it's in the electronic healthcare record, there's a responsibility of there to be able to understand, interpret and communicate without doing a dot phrase and epic. It's so true. And I guess because you're an attending, you don't have to present to anyone anymore, but obviously. Thank God. Oh, that'd be terrible. That is like such storytelling, right? Yeah, um, right. With this because of this, and then this, and then we found this, and then this showed that. It's but a real structured way of storytelling. The chief complaint: really history structured. of present illness, past medical history, and you have a constraint of, you know, especially in the emergency room, it's like sixty seconds rather than like the five minute long medicine yeah. presentations. Oh no, I'm sure you cringe when the medicine interns come down. No, they're great because they get details that sometimes my emergency medicine residents don't get, you know? Well, yeah, because yeah, they they have the luxury up there to get the whole story. What were some of the stories that you told on some of the medical shows, like the resin that you wrote for? Well, I deliberately never used a story that I had experienced because I wanted to protect confidentiality, Mm -hmm. but I did communicate the general experience of, tried to communicate the general experience of chaos. And in the resident in particular is about the fact by and large that doctors can err, which is something that I feel the public is not willing to accept. What what do you mean the doctors can err? Well, in most medical shows, the doctors are the heroes and know what to do, and they very rarely make mistakes. And the fact that medicine is also a business and that capitalism has taken our health for hostage is not largely glimpsed in those shows. But that is very much the POV of The Resident, which, again, I was only involved with for the first season. But I think it's even become more so this way since it's a particular passion of the co-creator, Amy Holden Jones's, that that medicine is a business and that there are good doctors and bad doctors. Is a, it's just a basic fact of our profession that is so familiar to us. It's based partly on a book called Unaccountable by Marty McCary. And there's an anecdote in the book that rings true for every doctor who has ever practiced medicine, which is he goes to this conference or something like it and says, uh, can you raise your hand if you know a doctor who should probably not practice medicine? And everyone in the room raises their hand. And Yeah, probably- I, I, I know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that we all know doctors who should practice medicine and and that nobody out there going to doctors knows? That's wow. partly what the show is about. But obviously it's a balance between, you know, people have to trust their doctors and they can't be afraid of them. And then also telling the truth and be, because it's how we make ourselves better as a profession. And what inspired you, I guess, to tell stories like this? Well, honestly, that in particular is all Amy. Uh, because mm. Amy has been passionate about medical error before she met me. <laughs> um, is she a physician? No, she's the daughter of a physician. Her father was a doctor, but she might as well be. She knows a lot and has really immersed herself in books about that world and in doctors. She has, she knows a lot of doctors, but, but yeah, that, and Unaccountable is a book that she read and uh, was passionate about. Oh, that's fascinating. And I've, I heard you say that you had, in the beginning, you know, pushing for when you're doing these shows and when diversity wasn't that important that you're pushing for diversity in these shows. Can you explain how, how you did that? Yeah, well, it was much harder than compared to now. But when we pitched The Resident, we pitched, you know, a major Indian character, which at the time was unusual and who is still, you know, one of the biggest characters in the show, Devin, who's played by Manish Dale. At the time, that was like 
revolutionary doesn't feel even remotely revolutionary, but it was then. I, no, I mean, totally, I, totally, because yeah. it's most of these shows had a white male hero as the physician. Yeah, something happened to me on a medical show I worked on early on, and I won't name which, but a director who was directing an episode, there was an Indian, there was a cab driver, sorry, in the episode, weirdly, the doctor had to get in a cab or something. And at a casting meeting that I attended, he told uh, the casting people that the cab driver, he was imagining someone who was Sikh, had a turban and a really long beard and really Indian. And I asked him afterwards why the cab driver had to be Indian. And he said, because most of them are. And I said, well, most doctors are Indian or Asian. And this cast is all white. They're all white doctors. So why does ethnic realism matter in one realm, but not in another? And you see it over and over again, that the the casting assigned to Indians and Asians and Hispanic people and Black people is by and large the way that white people imagine them in the world. And the roles that they assume are auxiliary because they are auxiliary to their own lives. And that vision is sort of, is sort of represented in, in what we watch. That again is all less true now because we have more and more creators who come from underrepresented backgrounds. It's amazing in some ways that med- that being Indian is considered under underrepresented in Hollywood because it is not a diversity in medicine where e- everyone I trained with was Indian or Asian. <laughs> oh I yeah. I mean, you go into some of these hospitals and you could be in a very rural part of a state like yeah <laughs> you know like you mean rural iowa and then you'll go into the hospital and they're like they're like indians koreans taiwanese it's it's yeah. like the, mo- the most like diverse place in that community and i've that's been my experience going around to hospitals all over the country like doesn't matter where you are there's gonna be a lot of asians taking care of you yeah, <laughs> I know. It doesn't matter where you go. I once attended Grand Rounds in Anesthesia and they were literally talking in Hindi, the attendings. I was like, oh my God, we're just in India at this point. But <laughs> I think it's like, you know, they're, they're, the, the children of immigrants and immigrants themselves were attracted to medicine for obvious reasons. It has a lot of stability. It's a skill you can learn. And so it, it, there's a reason it is that way. But, yeah, but the, that's, yeah, I, I mean, my parents aren't physicians said they never went to college actually so but they're immigrants from korea uh, they still actually live there right now and but i had no choice to become a physician they would have there that was their dream for me in their life and brainwashed me from an early age but then i was always had all these other ideas of kind of what i wanted to do with my life especially and i thought i was a creative person or kind of was attracted to those fields, but I had to choose this um, path of medicine, which, and the training is not a very creative journey. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think your journey is an inspiring one for me and probably many of the people listening, because you were able to merge these like two passions of like medicine and screenwriting, and, and you're able to continue to excel at both of those at a very high level. How are you able to do that? Do you have a secret to you, like your work-life balance? I hate that term because I don't have a work-life balance, but like, if we, yeah. yeah. Well, I say, I would say I'm able to do it at great cost to my mental health and uh, my loved ones. <laughs> um, I have gradually learned that about myself, but this journey has not been easy emotionally on me or on the people in my life. Mm. So I am, if anything, de-escalating now. It helps so much that I only work clinically for 12 weeks of the year. I'm almost like an ED doctor with Mm -hmm. 
circumscribe yeah. my work is clinically. I don't have any longitudinal patient care and I don't get like emailed or called about someone when I'm off. So that helps a lot. That is much less onerous than it was when I was a, a resident. And then I'm picking and choosing what I do in Hollywood a little bit more carefully too, so that I'm not overwhelming myself, which is always my immediate instinct because of my sort of patterns and drive. But it is like a, it is a really tricky thing. I'm not really sure I would recommend this to anyone. I just think um, that we do need to do a better job of making the arts and a creative life more accessible to more people. And there's so much nepotism in Hollywood. Most people arrive in this industry because they were the children of someone who was in this industry. And that is true for me too in medicine. My mother is a doctor, so I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. So it happens in every industry, but we, there's no clear track in Hollywood. If you want to become a doctor, you just apply to medical school. Obviously there are so many obstacles to applying to medical school for low income people. And for, I mean, I don't want to imply that medicine is an accessible profession because in so many ways it is racist and sexist and backwards, but it uh, is more accessible, I would argue than Hollywood where it's literally like, how do you become a writer? Nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows. Everyone does it a different way. It's complete dumb luck in many ways who succeeds and who doesn't. And it is entirely closed off to people who aren't independently wealthy, I mm. feel. But but medicine, obviously, I want to emphasize, has those problems too. Mm. Um, I think I just have one last question to put you on the spot a little bit, but I, I, always, yeah. guess, I always ask guests this, you know, what your thoughts are on how might we design a healthier life and that could either be individually or collectively yeah i think uh, a healthier life for me at least has meant frequent therapy which i think everyone should be in no matter if absolutely they have quote unquote issues or not i think therapy helps so much especially with a good therapist and the work that therapists do is incredible. I think meditation has been helpful to me in the past, though I'm not really meditating now, but would like to. These are all such generic answers, but that maybe the answers are generic in the end. And then I think in medicine in particular, finding the time and space to reflect on what we're doing, not just the emotional impact that it has on us, but what we are feeling and what the people we're treating are feeling. I think it would be so interesting if in regular clinical medicine, after a patient encounter, we asked each other afterwards, what was going through that person's head? What are they feeling? Just to make empathy more of an active exercise instead of an internal one. I think empathy is less in medicine about like sort of catchphrases and things you say to them and more about putting ourselves into their brains, which is also, like I said before, the task of writing. I think all of that would make us healthier as people and as a profession too. I 100% agree. I have not been able to pause during the pandemic and to reflect. And I had a little bit of chance doing that over the past couple of weeks. I'm doing a film project that I can't talk about right now, but it allowed me to think upon what physicians were going through during the pandemic from all over the country. I was like, like crap, this is like the first time the whole during the whole pandemic where I just paused and allowed myself time to go, what happened? you know, what happened to us and cause we're still in it. And I was like, how is this? This is crazy. I've been working my butt off for like the past year and a half and hadn't had time just to reflect and talk to other physicians. I had this unique opportunity to talk to physicians all over the country about their experiences. And to me, that was very therapeutic. Yeah. Well, it's, I can't imagine what you've been through, honestly, especially as an ER doctor because it's been such a roller coaster from like everybody banging pots for doctors to where we are now 
which without getting into the politics is quite complicated. It's just like, what a crazy time to be an ER physician. I cannot imagine. Yeah. Just crazy time to be in this country on this planet. Right. <laughs> right <now>. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, it's such a joy to have you on. I want to be sensitive yeah. to your time, uh, Roshan. It was uh, thanks, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, absolutely. It was really fun um, talking to you. I'm so glad you're doing this. You can find Dr. Roshan Sethi on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at r o s h a n v s e t h i. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, rate us there, leave us a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.